her life was slowly going away. It was changing, and not for the better. There are words, what they said to me, always hang on to Tamo. Tamo land, Tamo is sacred. So long as you have land, you will survive. Welcome to Salish Wolf, a podcast bringing you inspirational stories of extraordinary endeavors. I am your host, Todd Howard. Just south of my Vancouver Island home is a tiny archipelago on which for nearly a decade lived a most astonishing animal, a lone wolf. Takea, as he would be named, survived and thrived in an environment where likely no wolf had ever set foot. In the process, he captured the hearts of a community and showed us even the most unlikely is possible. His story is not dissimilar to those of the individuals interviewed on this podcast. At some point, they each had to turn to their inner lone wolf. From there, they were able to lead and inspire. My intention is to share their journeys to help you discover your own inner greatness and peace. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions, where I provide life-changing personal leadership retreats for men, coaching, and other valuable personal growth resources. Visit anchorpointexpeditions.com to see where your journey could take you. This episode, like many others, is about the power and beauty of the human spirit. Yet this episode is not like any other. Joan Morris is an elder of the Songhees Nation of the Lekwungen people on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. As with many of her people, she has suffered greatly in the name of colonialization. And now she advocates for survivors of the draconian system that included residential schools and Indian hospitals. Joan is the last surviving person to have lived on Kichez Island, known in English as Chatham Island, part of a small archipelago located a few kilometers off the south coast of Vancouver Island, near to Victoria. This is the same archipelago where the namesake of this podcast, the Salish Wolf, known as Stikea to Joan's people, lived and thrived. This conversation with Joan as a low-velocity, high-intensity journey through some of the severe hardships Indigenous people of Canada, and certainly of other places, have faced due to European migration. This is undoubtedly the hardest episode I have recorded and will likely be challenging for you, the listener. And yet the facts are simply too brutal and omnipresent, even today, for us to simply turn a blind eye or a deaf ear. For healing, there must be forgiveness and compassion. For compassion to be widespread, so too must the stories of incomprehensible suffering. This episode contains graphic material and may not be suitable for young children, but I urge you to listen. Our collective path forward will be built on the knowledge of where we have come. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Joan Morris on Salish Wolf. Joan, welcome to Salish Wolf, and thank you for this opportunity. It's good. If you don't mind, Joan, could you please open this conversation with a blessing? Man hails is usually 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lord God, this is your land. This man is your man. The air, everything we have here is yours that thou didst create. I thank you so much for who you are. I ask you to protect Depend each and every one of us that will be taking a stand against this COVID, this pandemic, all other forms of attack. I ask especially for my people. You knew about this even before you created me. My whole family is wiped out from a TB epidemic. All the families are gone from discovery. I am the last from the chest. I ask you to protect and defend my great-grandchild that would be born in May all other unborn children. This is the seventh generation coming. They will be free of all this. They'll be free from the Indian residential schools and the Indian hospitals. The foster care plan that's still apprehending our newborns. I put this all into your hands. I asked for billions, billions, billions of mighty warring angels to be here to protect, defend. You alone can bless. God is our family, but protect the land, protect the air, protect the water, protect the whole family. He's all extended family on both sides. Amen. Thank you, John. And thank you again for being here with me today. I know a lot of what we are about to discuss will not be easy. And I greatly appreciate you coming forward with and sharing much of your story. 
and doing so as a tool to help heal. As I know healing is, is very necessary. If there's anything that I ask you today that you would prefer not to answer, just say so and we'll move on. Okay. I have so many questions, so many things that I want to better understand. Uh, some of those are questions from, from others close to me that I've picked up over time. And I'm not sure where the conversation is going to take us, but I, I am certain it is going to be very meaningful. I thought to begin... You said other people. Are you talking about First Nations or all people in general? All people in general. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I thought to begin, you, you mentioned your beautiful blessing, protection for your people. Can you just lay a foundation, tell us who your people are and what you mean by that? I was born and raised Songhees Nation. My grandma was from Bakuchin. My mom was forced into a marriage with my father from Strasbourg, My she didn't want to ever be married. She had chosen to be a nun. My dad had proposed. She had refused. He went to his parents. who came to my grandparents. And it was arranged our way. Oh, she was forced into this marriage. <coughs> she was diagnosed with TB when I was born. So two weeks after I was born, she was sentenced to Naimuinin Hospital. My dad went back to Strasbourg with his parents. So I consider myself Plagoman Songhees. <coughs> My mom died 30 years ago. My dad going into the sixth year. 75% of our people were told they had TB.
This was a means of controlling our people. I've talked about the ECT, the shock treatment that was done. I've seen them done at Eric Martin, the last place I worked as a nurse's aide. Besides all the drugs that was injected to us, the ECT was only supposed to be for four seconds, but it was done on a private, both male and female, for 15 seconds. And Psychona to the delete button on a computer and it wipes out your memory for good, which is why so many of our people can't remember. But so much of the trauma and the medical experimentation, the sterilization, the mutilation, that happened. My people are in dire need of healing. That's why I want to chase Chatham Island to remain free from any kind of tourism industry, but to be a land of healing because my whole family my all the old ones that are gone, they're all healers from all over. They came from the States, from Niabe, Musqueam, Squamish. You clue it. The family started gathering and March started, started with sheep shearing time, seaweed picking, seal hunting, clam digging, all that was part of what went on there, but I was so blessed to grow up with a little. I want to get into so many of the things that you just brought up in that. Let's start at what I'm sure is going to be a very painful place. You spoke of your mom, how she was taken away to Nanaimo Indian Hospital two weeks after you were born. What happened to your voice? I've been like this all my life. Strapped, punched around, kicked around, starved. Called all manners of At the time, I didn't know I just have the one right vocal cord. 
I kept losing my voice the first year I was working on it. The doctor I had sent me to a throat specialist and that tube is stick down your throat. It's pretty hard for me. But after they were done, he was shaking his head and he said, either somebody forced you to drink some strong or acidic or you were choked. And I couldn't remember anything. I had started going in for healing for myself from residential schools and the Indian Hospital and this couple that were in town at the time. I think they're called seers. They can take you back in time to the womb. He saw my mom picking the herbs. Remember, she was forced into this marriage. And it made it worse because I came along. She knew the herbs too for it. I thank the Creator for sustaining me because I was born in July. And he brought me back to that time. He described my mom to a T. He said, she's feeding me through a bottle. Finished and she burps me and puts me on her lap. <coughs> and she choked me. So that's what's destroyed this side. But all my life I've been picked on because. Everybody always says, speak up, why? Why don't you talk louder? It was because of that. I was always caught in a war between my mom and my dad when they came back into my life when I was 16 going on 17. Because my dad, she didn't want to be married, and I came along. I said, hello, told me, 
my grandma and my great-grandma. When I was born, they woke him up and I told him I was born. <coughs> they said he got up and looked. And his only words were, is it a girl or a boy? Because he wanted nothing but sons. So Jamaica told him, clearly, female. He just turned over and went back to sleep. But as I said, I was always caught in a war between the two. Because my mom always said, you look so much your dad. You look so much like your dad. You act like your dad. And from my dad, because my mom was very religious, that he said, you act like a holy roller, like your mom. So. When you found out about the choking, was your mom still alive? Yeah. Did you ever talk to her about it? I tried. Even on her deathbed. I had asked, because for a while I was just her and I, because everybody kept iPhone the family. Says, point. there's no going back. My mom's gonna be going." But no, everybody kept saying she's top. She pull through. But we were alone for about a good six hours. But I said, "Mom." Why did you not want me? I understand now, because I always throw it in my face. I look like my dad. I know she was starting to slip because she was starting to change stoke. I begged her, I begged her over and over. I said, Mom, you could write it. You could relate to other people. But I, together when my mom, my dad was on his deathbed. 
most parents died with ever saying I love you. It's taken the past 10 years to trust men because of residential. Then I moved in the hospital. I was only two to four years old when I was at Naimo Indian Hospital. They claimed they couldn't find my Shalilo, my grandma, my great grandma. So from four to five, I was sent to Cooper the first time. Cooper being residential school? Yeah. Here on, not far from here on Cooper Island. Across Tremendous Bay. And your mom was also in the Naimo Indian Hospital. She was in there for 17 and a half years. So the entire, basically first 17 and a half years of your life, except for the first two weeks. And I've read in, in Medicine Unbundled, beautiful book by Gary Geddes in which you are a large part of that she basically went into the hospital or was forced into the hospital as a healthy 18 year old and then her health dwindled over the years to the point that when she came back out you had to take care of her I got out of <coughs> I got out of Cooper Residential. They were closing down on Naimo, so we got out the same day. But she became the daughter, and I became the mom. She had a set of rules: no drinking, no smoking. But I was the one that always had to enforce it. I became the mom. So you were raised without a mom, raised without without a dad. And it was your grandparents who brought you up. And one of the greatest gifts in your life is is what they gave you and where they brought you up on Kichez. Can you talk some of your childhood home and of your grandparents who raised you? Kichez has always been my home. God forgive me for saying it will always be my home because to me it was my heaven on earth. My uncle was, I think, about eight years older than me. So basically, I, I was born and raised old. I knew some of the children of her 
on discovery, but Jamaica and my grandma were very protective of you know. Just a little old that came, the old ones that show, came to help out with everything. Their word was their bond. They, <coughs> they were so full of love and there was no rivalry. Everything was shared. The teachings that were taught was always taught in a kind, compassionate way. With my heaven on earth. So Kachez is known as Chatham Island. It's part of an archipelago, which is just south of Vancouver Island, just a few kilometers away from Victoria, which is the capital city of British Columbia. You grew up in an environment that really could have been three or four hundred years ago. You were alone with your family on a small island surrounded by a few other small islands. You had no electricity, no yeah. running water. Everything that you needed to sustain your lives basically but came from the land. Was there. We had the choice of any kind of fish, seal, ducks, Jamaica grew her own fruit trees. That's why I knew that one was King's, because that was her favorite, Jamaica. My grandma had boysenberries, loganberries, raspberries, potatoes, carrots, onions, celery. It's the only thing we left chess for was like tea, coffee. So back then it was the tins of, what do you call it? Milk, think, right? Conden condensed milk. Condensed milk. Mm -hmm. Other than that, we we had everything there. And to this day, the archipelago is, it still appears to be heaven on earth. It is. It's untouched. Beautiful chain of islands. The other week we had a pit cook here on our farm. And you were an elder, a salelo, and you spoke and taught at the pit cook, and you spoke of your dream and your vision for your home, for Kichez, for the island. Can you speak a bit about what that is? Nancy Turner brought me over there a number of years ago when we came back and we left and we were at Cattle Point. She said, what's your dream and vision for the chest now? 
I really believed it saved our people, what the white people call the dirty thirties, when mass starvation hit the world. But people like my Salilo that grew up over there, we considered ourselves rich because I never knew hunger. I didn't even know what a slap was till I went to Cuba. My dream and vision was for the youth to go back to work on the tongue of the land. Nancy had asked one of the youth to go start a fire. know how to do that. One of the guys that I trained about the herbs, his dream was to bring back the Columbus. His brother wanted to do a seal hunt. Somebody else wanted to do reef netting. That weekend it was tough cause, talking about it because Skippy Sam was, was going to teach reef netting. I had picked somebody else for doing a seal hunt because you can't just go out and shoot it or pop it on. Yet you have to know the words. You have to know the ritual, the cleansing to do before you do that. You can't just, you can't just go out and kill it. There's so many things that are gone, the teachings. I brought that up with Fran. <coughs> when a girl became a young woman, when a man, when a boy lost his voice, went through the voice change, there was different teachings. Or even if you lost a loved one. There was different things to do. And I don't see, I don't hear of it being done anymore. So traditionally, your people had rites of passages to mark certain milestones in life to help with healing, to move forward into manhood or womanhood. Traditions that are, would you say, fading now? Yes. Nearly extinct? When I talk with abuse of the look we have, 
That's one of the main things they say. It's gone. When I correct, most don't receive it. I've been untold. That's in the past. Nobody does it anymore. Nobody teaches anymore. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Nancy Turner, our mutual friend, world-renowned ethnobotanist. She helped us host a traditional pit cook here for your 75th birthday not long ago. What a gift that was to me and my family to be able to to have that sacred tradition here on our farm. And in a previous interview I had done with Nancy, I asked her how we can share this land that I know was originally not ours. It was not it was it did not belong to the white person. It belonged to the people that became that came before us. It belonged to your people. And she said the best thing that she thought we could do was to share it. And so I've since reached out to you and others so that we can share this land and and you and your family and friends came for your birthday and for a traditional pit cook and I was astounded by so many things, um, absolutely touched by the ritual and the care and the respect that went into this day-long event. Also by the community that comes together, the memories that are shared, the different cultures from different nations that came together, be it Cowichan or Songhees or Sartlib, it didn't matter where someone was from. It was a beautiful gathering of people and spirit and, and love. And the Salelos, the elders, as they're known in your language, as you've done, teach. And you teach through your stories and through drumming and through other rituals that are to me a window into a culture that was so rich and connected to all things, people, animals, plants, the planet. It was absolutely beautiful. And I was also shocked to hear how many people how many First Nations people had never attended a pit cook before. And we just saw this again last week when we hosted another one. Many of them spoke out saying, this is my first. What can be done, do you think, to help save these traditions before they are completely extinct? You've done the main one by opening up your home, the land. That's the main part, especially with this pandemic. We used to go back to this 
and do it there. But because of the lack of transportation, it is such an honor to be able to do it here and to keep it open. That's the only way the young ones are going to learn. See ya, the youth. Like when my great-grandchild is born, when I'm gone. That this is but a seed planted, like what you did for that little tree. We planted an oak tree for your 75th birthday. That this will keep growing. Mm Mm-hmm. And flourish. What do these traditions offer to your people? To me, hope. My people have been so beaten down. That's why I want to just to stay healing place. You've talked about the place you started. We need people like you. Nancy will be 75 next month. She's the one that started reaching out, but she's, as you said, worldwide known. She shares my name, Selsama, given to me by my grandma. Comes from Chess, Chatham Island. But I asked her some years ago if she would grace me with sharing my name because she reminds me so much of my grandma. I've carried it even further with her because I said she's only 19 when she was with you back in the museum. You pick a place so you don't know the language, the culture, the food, anything. But she went to a house at Haida Gwaii, all those places, all by herself. You ask her someday about when she was given her first julep and well to drink. But you, you think about it. To me, she's such a saint, because she knows the English name, the Latin name, and our name for each nation, because it's different all of them, from here to Lamy to La Connor, Bay, all up and down the island. What does your name mean? I never knew the meaning. Okay. It was my grandma's name. I'm thinking when we do start going back to the island, I want to take back the first name Jamaica gave me my great-grandma. It's what yesterday love called me, which taught or not. The people that had put me in the big house they said I couldn't have it, that, they, that I could only choose my grandma's name. So, but I still want to take it back. Can you say the name again? Which taught or not. Do you know what that means? No. 
I think I showed you a picture of my great-grandma. She's all of four feet, maybe 90 pounds, soaking wet. Those people were so tough in those days. I was the only one I could see at night. The outhouse was quite a distance from the house. So I just learned to stay awake at night because we had quite a house load. Sometimes to me could go, sometimes my grandma, Amelia or Julia. But I'd have to be the one to take them out and brag. There was a bit of a slope, and Jamaica slipped, and she braced herself. Two bones came out in her right arm. We brought her to St. Joe's, which is now Victoria General, but we brought her to St. Joe's. She never cried, never screamed. You know what they have to. You know what they have to do to before they can put that cast on. But they put the cast on. Gave us two aspirins to give her when we put her to bed. So when we got home, we gave it to her, tucked her in. In the morning, when we got up, and went. The two aspirins were on the floor, and she snuck in a better life. She was up all night. She got that cast off, got the herbs, and just bound it with a, a kerchief her purse. Because I get a little sliver and I'm not screaming, but I'm hurt. <laughs> you know? They were tough. Mm -hmm. And with those herbs, how did her arm heal? Quick. Do you know what she used? No. What did your elders, how much did they know about the land that is no longer being carried forward in, in subsequent generations? I don't know how old I was. I never saw them cry. I don't know what had happened. Because they were all together in the living room. There was a stove in the corner. I remember sitting on a blanket. I never ever saw Jamaica cry, even when Grandpa died. But whatever had happened, they were all pretty close to tears, including her. But the words that they said, our life was slowly going away. It was changing, and not for the better. There are words, what they said to me, always, Hang on to Tomo. 
come up with sacred. So long as you have land, you will survive. Can you say that sacred word again? Tamo. Tamo. Land. Land. Okay. And the land is sacred. Yes. And as long as you have that connection to the land. It's called Tlemotli. Very precious. And Joan, what happened to your your island home? Why did you leave? The well we had went dry. So we moved back to where we are. We had gone wild blackberry. The, you know the real wild blackberry? Small. Yes. Yeah. We were at Christie Point picking. steps up on a <coughs> log. The bark gave way and she slipped. She fell right into the blackberry bushes. She tore quite a chunk out of her arm. She had developed an aneurysm, which we didn't know anything about. <laughs> but she'd gotten other herbs, and she recovered, and that healed pretty quickly. But the one morning, she didn't wake up the usual time. gentleman that used to come and see us. He came in and I was sitting in the kitchen waiting for her to get up. And he said, where's your grandma? And she's still sleeping. And he knew something was wrong. So he went in, tried waking her up. He didn't say anything, but he went running in when he came back. Had four men with him, and somebody with a car. They dragged her to the car. Just then, my grandfather came home, and I said to him, "We're never gonna see her." I don't know how long, but it was a couple of days later. She died at St. Joe's from an aneurysm, from bopping her head on that log. You know what caused that? But we didn't know anything about that. And it was then I was, I decided I wanted to be a nurse. I worked as a nurse's aide all my life. Mm -hmm. And you had to give up that dream of being, being a, a nurse. nurse. When I came home from it after 10th grade, 
my mom sat me down with her and my aunt. My mom only had the one lung. My aunt had, I think it was scarlet fever. So she had a bad heart, so they both couldn't work. But when she sat me down, she said, you're going to have to quit school and go to work. And the closest I could get to was being a nurse's aide. I was in Cedars Private Hospital, an old English nurse took me under her wing. We did everything in those days like a nurse. The only thing I wouldn't do was the shots. But we had to know how to do the catheters, clean the catheters, everything, pass out the pills. We had to know the pills, the different diets. Like I had never heard of dyspasia until then. So <coughs> she was a good English nurse that taught me. So all my life I worked as a nurse's aide. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the medical system and the impact it has had on your people. We've mentioned the Naimo Indian Hospital. I know there have been many hospitals across Canada, probably across the United States, that were so-called Indian hospitals. You spent some time there when you were younger. Can you share a bit about what that particular hospital was like? You're talking about Nanaimo. Nanaimo. <coughs> well, I was only two, going to four when they got out because they didn't want to look after us. The term we used then was posies, those restraints. They put that on us, and we were in a crib. They tied the way down so they couldn't, we couldn't untie it. So you were strapped down in a crib? Yeah, for hours. Sometimes they let us out on a chair. Most of the time they loosen it, just enough we could sit up and eat. Why were you at the hospital? My mom went in when I was two weeks old. I don't know when my dad went in. There was 12 on my dad's side of the family. Almost every one of them ended up at Nanaimo on a pretext of TB. TB, tuberculosis. And you said 75% of your people, people were told were, they had tuberculosis. Yeah. Okay. To me, this was a means of control through the drugs 
through the shock treatment ECT. The mutilation. The experimentation. My one uncle that I wanted When I first started doing this, Ubik, Joan Kelly was the first one that recorded. But my uncle was. He started crying. So I can't, I can't talk about it. Neither could my dad. When they were tearing down the Nymoinen Hospital a few years ago, I was running a support group for the survivors, and there was 12 coming to my place. Some drivers came forward willing to take whoever was willing to go up to Nanaimo. The only part that wasn't torn down. The operating room where the ECT and everything was done. My uncle just cried and cried. When we went back to one ward, I believe it was the children's ward where I was. He said, I can't talk, I can't talk, but I'll show you what they did to me. And he took off his jacket and his shirt. You can tell me, tell on her, but it started from here. From the throat. All the way down. All the way down the All left way. side, underneath the rib cage. All the way through the back, up to the back of the neck. Circled around the back, back up they, to the neck. They opened him up, and they took out his left lung, and three of his ribs. Mm -hmm. That was not the horror. They couldn't be bothered to look after him. They put him on a gurney. They threw him down by the morgue. Just waiting for him to die. It wasn't for my uncle, younger uncle. Six times he asked, he'd go up to, where's my brother, where's my brother? Six times they beat him up. The orderly, orderlies punched him around, kicked him around. But the sixth time they finally gave up and they laughed at him. You want to see your brother? And they laughed and they pointed and said, 
I'll look down in the morgue. He went running down. Saw my uncle. He felt for a pulse and it was very feeble. So he went running up. Said, if you don't do something about my brother, I'm calling the cops. So they went rushing down. Finally brought him up and looked after him. And that's what saved him. But this was one of many. Besides the drugs that they injected into us. When I first started working for our nation, the first lady that came to talk to me, she was crying. And she said, Tony, I can't remember anything. Can you tell me what this is to you? I've heard dozens of people say this. I can't remember. With the women, because I've seen it down at Eric Martin, the shock treatment. ECT, they call it. Supposed to be only for four seconds on the temple. <coughs> on the females, they put it on the nipples, on the boys, on their penis. And they did it for 15 seconds. As I said, if it's tr longer than four seconds, it's like pushing the delete button because it wipes out your memory for good. That's why a lot of our people can't remember. Why were they doing it on the nipples and the genitals? Very traumatic. You know, when you touch an outlet, yes. you've been shocked. Well, it's so traumatizing. Because of the pain, but also whatever it does to the brain, that it's no longer functioning. Mm -hmm. You spoke of starting a support group for survivors of Nanaimo Indian Hospital. Most non-Indigenous people, I would imagine, cannot even understand what is meant by that, because of course we have hospitals to help us. You had hospitals that you were forced into that did experimental treatments, forced starvation, sterilization, radical surgeries. As you said, tuberculosis was diagnosed as being rampant they had a system for treating that, which was removing ribs 
and taking out the lung, one of the one part of the lung or a half of the lung. Truck experimentation. My younger uncle had saved my older one. He used to know the names. He could name them. He's sick now, so he doesn't remember any of that. The names of the drugs. And Joan, who were the doctors? Whoever mandated this or sanctioned it. Because Germany had just finished with what they did to the Jews. People were sent over there to bring the nurses, the doctors, whoever was willing to come up and start these places. So they didn't have any qualms what they did to us. They didn't ask questions. They, they just did it. So Nazi war criminals were yes. given a second chance. Yes. They had just finished being doctors, so-called doctors, in the, the camps. And now they're getting a second lease on, on their professional and, and, and lives in general to be doctors in the Indian hospitals across Canada and to do experiments. I know that for sure, because one doctor kept in touch with my mom. I think the word Darcy used was narcissistic, very approachable, likable character, but very devious. Mm -hmm. Nicholas Schmidt was like that. He had wanted to take my mom's left lung out too, but she said, if I die, I die. She wasn't going to be operated on. So she just had the right lung. Can you talk a bit about the sterilizations? Because there was so much rape from the orderlies and the doctors from both residential schools and Indian hospitals. I think the proper term is DNC, you know, they scrape your mom. Okay. They said they were just going to do that, but they took away your home. Mm-hmm. There were so many of our women couldn't bear children. Mm-hmm. Whatever they did to the men, they were sterile. Joan, is this still happening to an extent today? Yes. To your knowledge? Yeah. Where is it happening? All over. Is this in hospitals still? Yes. Is it happening with or without permission of the person? They say you sign a document, but you, you and I both know You have to sign something before they take you into surgery. 
and let's see if they ever find out of anything more that gives them permission mm-hmm. to go beyond that. So that's a means of sterilizing our people. Because what better way? I can't kill the Indian. So you see what they term way back, eradicate, deal, deal with eliminate, eliminating the lice and vermin, which was us. Does that make sense? It does. Well, it it doesn't make sense, no. But I mean, but you I understand. understand, yeah. Yes. And I think most people who hear this are going to be incredulous that this is actually still happening. But you know people who this has ha- has happened to, even recently, don't you? One of the girls, we were both together up at the Limeweenian Hospital in Cooper. I think that they called it the Iron Lung, that thing that was put over. Oh, know, the Iron Lung for yeah, polio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they put her in one. You're helpless when you go in that the things that they did to her. That's why I am so proud to say we are survivors because when she came to Cooper, her younger siblings were there. One boy I knew. It's so ironic. His dream When he got out of Cooper, he wanted to be a priest to help our people. He forgot everything we did was censored. Our mail was read. Anything we had going out was read. Our phone calls. There was already somebody in the next room waiting. If we had visitors, we were put in a place where they could, they were in the next room, always listening. Richard had forgotten his he had phoned home. He was graduating that year. And he said, I'm going to talk. Because he was buggered by two priests and a brother who is now a priest. But the three buggered him. In the morning, we called it the call bell, but they had a bell that wake us up with every morning. But they woke us up externally. Early brought us to the gym. From the oldest to the youngest. 
They had us parade past one corner of the gym. When we looked up, Richard was hanging in a corner of the gym and they said he had committed suicide. Out of the three, two are left. My friend tried. We tried catching up to them, but every time we found out where they were, they would move them somewhere else. So Richard was, he was one day away from graduating, right? He was being released the next day. He was calling home to his family. He told them he was going to tell. Yeah. He was going to talk. And that night, or the next morning, they hung him. They hung him. And but put him on display for everyone to see. They said, as we each went by, if you ever talk, If you ever even think about it, take a good look. And he pointed up, this can happen to you. So the priest and the brothers occasionally committed murder. Often, often, often raped physically and emotionally abused. Try to exterminate the culture and tradition within you. Why do you still have faith in Christianity, Joan? My great-grandparents and grandparents I believe this was a hideaway, a means of protection. So they they couldn't speak English, they couldn't understand English because they never went to school. I always had to be present when they were trading or shopping because they'd ask me what, like what the price of rice was or whatever they were buying. They escaped that horrendous part. From a time I could walk and talk, Seldoma was the one to bring me up praying. She always knew when my uncle, when he reached certain age when started experimenting and drinking, smoking. She always knew when to pray. She would either wake me up or come and get me somewhere and just would kneel down and pray for my uncle or forever, whoever. So I grew up praying in our language. 
a lot of the teachings that are from the Bible are what my Sohwan taught me, the old ones that are gone. I want to understand a bit more about the residential schools. You were Cooper Island Residential School. There were residential schools throughout Canada and the United States. My understanding is that families had no choices. No. Children so were taken. They told the men if they tried to stop it to be put in jail, both male and female. When did this start? I don't know when it started, but... You were born in 1945? Were there residential schools at the time of your birth? Yeah. Okay. And there were residential schools up until the late 70s? correct? I believe the last one was in the 90s. In the 90s. Yeah. If the residential school, because the same lady that talked about the ECT, as I said, all, all my time there I suffered, I was beaten, starved. Because I could not speak up. This lady that came to see me. This one nun, like, punching around. They didn't just slap you. They used their fist and kicked you around. And this lady was stopping it. And the nun said to her, you do that one more time, you know where you're going. If you stop, if you protect, if she protected you. So the next morning comes, they like getting us up between five and six with that cope, what we call the cowbell. And we go downstairs, line up. And this nun again starts sticking around this little girl. She goes to stop it. And then, without a word, they always had an intercom where they call for extra help. She called the Naimo up that we're sending so-and-so. You know, they always try drugs first. That doesn't work. Then they do them. It's a shock treatment. They knew how to control you. Mm -hmm. So if you acted out in any way that they considered acting out, including speaking your own language or not speaking up, as it were, in your case, or praying to someone different than who they wanted you to pray to. That was grounds for 
egregious abuse. She was my grandma. <coughs> it took me a long time to forgive them. They always like to say, because they're so little, weren't married by them to priests or to church. They said that our people were burning the boys of hell. Because I knew what Selma taught me, I'd say. They don't drink. I was brought up praying. But this unfairity made them even more angry. Hence, if the beatings didn't work, they like locking you up in dirt places and left. But nothing to eat, no, not even more. It took me a long time. Because if you knew my Salelo, they were so loving, compassionate. A lot of respect. I could not see them. I could not see them being sentenced by Chaos, Jesus, to burn in the fires of hell as they taught through their catechism, you know. How did they round up the children and force them into these schools? The RCMP came. The police? And they, they didn't even have to knock on the door. They just banged down the door, walk in. I was sent a second time, as I said, when my grandma died. So we're now living back here at Songhees. Mm -hmm. Then I was sent to Cooper a second time. How old were you? Ten. Okay. And did the police come and take you? No. They spoke to my mom, and I don't know who she spoke to, but somebody came and got me and drove me up there. And as you said, your parents had no choice, so it was either... Oh, I was my grandfather. Your grandfather. My great-grandparents. But it was either go to jail or give your, your children for the residential school system. And... Was there any attempt to glorify the schools, to make it look like they were actually doing good? Did you think when you were at 10, when you were going away, did you think this was going to be a happy place where you were going to learn? No. The two things I can remember about Cooper being sent there at four to five years of age. 
I was always with the little. I was not used to other children. So when they brought us down by the sea after school to go swimming, sometimes the older kids got a bit rough and I, I didn't want to go in. I remember being picked up thrown in. I remember going back and I was calling out to Jamaica, my great-grandma. The second time when I went back. <coughs> so I said, they sure lo- they like locking you up in dark places. It's hard to explain, but when somebody disappeared, they usually said they ran away. We knew they didn't. They were killed. Because you got, I don't know the mileage between Cooper and Chimena's Bay. It's a long swim. But it's very rough in the middle. Mm-hmm. We lost a lot of children. They were so desperate to get away from there. They'd get on a log, whatever they could find, to swim away, never to be seen again. A statistic that I read in Medicine Unbundled is that 40 to 60% of those sent to the residential schools did not come back. It's true. 40 to 60% die. Because they weren't held accountable. They would, like the girls, if the priests or the brothers sexually abused you and they became pregnant. If they beat you and you didn't lose the baby, that no qualms about killing you. They had their own graves in the back that they just throw you in. So they would rape? If you became pregnant, they would try to beat you to the point of abortion. And if that didn't work, they would kill you. What was a typical day like in the residential school? You lived in fear. Foreign food. What kind, what kind of food? Foreign food. Foreign food. The bread was moldy, with powdered milk. I used to love codfish because I grew up on it. But because I could get it pretty easy over there, we got caught quite a bit, but they overcooked it. It was, you know, crap. You made one soup. It was a bit of those corn kernels. That was the first time I ever experienced a hot dog. But they chopped it up so thin, and that was a soup. 
just the corn and the weenie diced up. How was your food? And was it in the schools where they did nutrition deprivation experiments? Yeah. Basically starvation experiments to see the limits of the human body. Looking at your book out there called Wheat Billy. Because <clears throat> a lot of our people, my mom, my grandma, I'm getting that way myself, or I have to ask what's, what's in the, what's put in the bread, or if it's laced with something else, you know, the white flour. If it wasn't moldy, the so I said mass experimentation was so so dominant, both in Indian hospitals and residential schools. Because if you dig deep enough, when you come across a residential school, with hours Cooper was Limo, they always operated with an Indian hospital. Because they... They went hand in hand. Yeah. The school created patients for the hospital. And when you got better, if you ever did, you were sent back to the school. Yeah. Was there actually any schooling that took place in these schools? Any education that was... When I first started, no. Our people are basically slaves. What they called a pantry or the scullery, I think other name was. When the kids finished eating, you know, those big dishwashers they had. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Anyway, you either trained in there, trained in the sewing room, the one part with that was called the laundry room. I think there was three great big washers. Three dryers. But on the right of that, what they called manglers. I forgot the correct term. But we asked not only our own stuff, but we asked to do the clergy's their outfits. So besides washing, they're separate drying it. It was a huge round thing. I was made of asbestos, but that was sort of like an awning thing. I think I was called a mangler. Okay, made of asbestos. Yeah. Used for ironing of some sort. You were forced to do it. So the residential school sounds to me like another word for an internment camp or a prison. Yes. It wasn't a school at all, other than the fact that it was young children who were forced to go there. 
you if you listen when my people are talking in between what they term playtime. You had, I think, maybe half an hour of doing your homework. Then you were told to go out. Ours was on the back part like this, clear. We would try and hide during those times. Nobody corrected them. Nobody watched them. A lot of the girls are sexually abused by the priests and the brothers. Even the nuns. That playtime was not playtime, it was victim time. They always prayed that you wouldn't be the one to pick to. Like what I said, what happened with my cousin Richard. The boys were buggered. The girls outright raped. From both sides, men and women. I read that some of the places had a lottery system where everyone was given a number, all the children. Yes. And those numbers would be chosen by the priests and the nuns. And if it was your number, you were the victim of the day. Let it go tend to their sexual needs. When Ben Hur came out, I couldn't understand why. Because when he sent to be with a Roman, and he was given a number of 41, and I started crying. That was my number, 41. I hated it for a while. <laughs> so not only you, like mine was with Stalton out. But I was given three names, Elizabeth Ethelton. You are not known by any name. Like you said, they just call out your number. 41. So the schools were practicing genocide. And as you said, this went on. I know Cooper Island closed at the end of the 70s, but the last residential schools weren't closed until the 90s. Yeah. And then in the 1960s, we had the infamous 60s scoop. And that is where indigenous children were again taken from their homes and this time adopted out into foster families. Still happening. Still happening. My auntie Hattie, her youngest girl, grandchild, 
she had the I think it's called clip pellet. Yes. So she couldn't talk. To my knowledge she's lost three babies. She's not allowed to see them, she's allowed to carry them to term. But they take the baby away without any consent. They just call her up an unfit mother. When did this happen? This is going starting back about twenty years ago. So around two thousand. Her children were being taken because she was deemed an unkempt mother. And they're then going into the foster care system. A friend of mine the other day, well-educated, very compassionate, asked me why, when she drives through the reservations, are all the houses poorly kept, are all the yards filled with junk, And she couldn't understand that. And I tried to explain the systemic trauma and the effects of that as best as I can. Would you say that is the reason? Like with myself. Not only because of what I'm suffering physically, there was two, two packs my mom and I made. When she got on an IMO and I got out of Cooper, because the last meal we had would be at four o'clock, supper time. So that left till what, seven o'clock, eight o'clock next morning. So we starved. When we got out, When I cooked, I always cooked extra. That mom and I could always salt away a bit, whether it be sandwich, a bowl of soup, or whatever. But we we kept our right by our bedside, knowing we had that freedom to eat when we wanted. I found myself doing it last night. Be the only time my mom and I ate together. It was the only time. Just the one time she talked about what they did to her. Remember, this is in the 40s, and it's still a glass needled, the syringe. Excuse me. Should I used to be so long? How what went in it was full. But the nurse would always find the belly button. And plunge the whole thing in. Why would a syringe be put in your belly button? The TB. The tuberculosis. But it would blow them up. 
what's my, what's a female that looked like they were nine months pregnant, how so bad it was, but very painful. What was it in the syringe? They don't know. So I said, Uncle Sandy was the only one that mm-hmm. knew the names. Remember I was talking about Clifford Cardinal. I would like to meet him and see if he knows what it was. Because mm-hmm. my mom said she couldn't eat for a couple of days. But every How often would you get shots like that? At least every second day. Was this during the school, in the school system or in the hospitals? The hospital. Every second day you would get a, and you indicated with your hands, about a six inch long needle into your umbilicus with drugs injected. The generational trauma that your people have suffered goes back far beyond even what we've spoken of. I know that this land on which we sit, my farm was purchased in the 1850s. It was the second parcel of land on this peninsula to be purchased. And it wasn't purchased from the indigenous people who lived on this land. It was purchased from the Hudson's Bay Company. And the Hudson's Bay Company through their nefarious treaties with legal verbiage that only the most astute lawyers can understand, let alone people who are not educated in the English language at all. They were forced into signing these treaties to give up, give up their land. And so when my friend asked this question about why are their yards so messy, I couldn't help but think about this beautiful land that I get to live on, which is only a few minutes away from the reservation that your people were given when all of this island was once theirs, once yours. The trauma is so deep and we know scientifically, we know medically, the traumas passed on genetically. We know it can go into at least the third generation. Native, th- native thought has always been at least seven generations. The abuse, the genocide, the lies, the stealing, the trauma that is a result of all of that is going to take many, many generations to live out and to result in healing. You often talk to me about things that the government is purporting to be initiatives to help, and yet you and I know, both know, that many of these things are not to help. You talked about one in which your people were be given were being given a powdered drink called crystal light, which is just shit. It's toxic, synthetic shit. And they're being given that by our health authority to help with diabetes. Is that correct? They were given boxes. 
I beg my aunt not to take it. My uncle, they lived not far from here. Everybody believed this one girl. She was, uh, what is that? I don't know if it's a dietitian or nutritionist, but she was handing them out like candy and told it's safe. Mm -hmm. But it's not because of the aspartame. I really believe my aunt and uncle are cripples. No one is, my uncle is paralyzed on one side. My auntie, we've almost lost her a couple of times. I so strong and believe that. Hmm. And then most recently you told me it was Splenda. Yeah. And these things aren't just being given out with notice that they're safe. These, if I'm not mistaken, are actually recommendations to help combat diabetes. Yes. Which is rampant in your communities. Because as I see it, your land has been taken. Your connection to the plants and to the animals has been broken or spoiled. The traumas that you've endured have left very few options other than to escape. And that is escape through drugs, escape through alcohol, escape through poor nutrition, poor food choices. Sex. And the government promotes all of this. Yes. You look at they try and push casinos. It's the biggest one. Yes. Are you optimistic? With you, Brad Cunningham, Nancy Turner, I am. There are people out there that care about all nations, tribes, and colors. The way I was brought up by my Salkwan, the old ones that are gone. They always knew when it was going to be a, a rough winter. Then we'd come home to the reserve. <coughs> Back then, the Chinese rented a massive portion. They had every kind of vegetable, tomato, celery, carrot. Cucumbers. Again, it comes back to why I want our youth to get back to the chess. There may not be much fish out there. That was one of the boys. There was a team coming out with me when, with Nancy learning about the herbs. That was the re that's where the reef netting comes in. We wanted to <coughs> restart the clam beds. Now I would like to see them not only grow the vegetables, but the herbs, because they're so destroyed, stinging nettle. Gah, me,
One term is the Indian consumption plant, which I hate. I think it's called Indian salary. Yeah, you gave me some seeds for that. Yeah. Devil's Club. Mm. You don't even see the stinging nettle anymore. Mm-hmm. What do your people most need, in your opinion, to heal and break free of this generational trauma? Too many have relied on pills for medication. That's why I want to use whoever else will come out to the chest. Because there's places to do this. To replant the herbal. Yeah. Which we need. But also to do the counseling for those that need it. Mm-hmm. In your language, elders are called Salelo. Salquan, for the ones that are gone. Okay. What is the importance of listening to the Salelo? I'm 75. I have always said my hands go up first to God. Center Salilo. Because what they taught me was learning to pray through my grandma. Who knows, I might have been desperate enough to give a kid on a log and try and swim across and never be seen again. I thank God for sustaining me for the time of conception. For learning to pray, despite the genocide that was performed in both, I survived with Chael's Jesus and the massive Sulchwan ones that are gone now. I took a time to teach. I thank you so much for your trust in me and your friendship. I so greatly enjoyed getting to know you and learning from you. And you've touched me and my family very deeply. And I just want to thank you for that. Hitchka means a lot to me. Would you like to close out with a blessing? Man, healthy, shushakli. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I tip. I tip. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I thank you, Hale, for coming down here to this earth, teaching us. You came down here as a human being. You died for us on that cross to 
so we could be free, we could learn from you. I thank you for sustaining me from a time of conception. It is by your grace I was ordained going into nine years ago. I thank you for Nancy Turner, Brad Cunningham, Todd, Ty. I ask that you bring forth many, many people. We need many people to come and help heal what we have left of our Salila, the old ones. There's not many left. This is the gen seventh generation coming up. It has been a prophecy for years that they will be free of all this genocide from the time of first contact to residential schools, to the Indian hospitals, to the foster care, and now this pandemic, that this generation will lead forth. This generation will be protected and blessed by you to help all nations, tribes, colors, creeds, races and languages. It will not just be Fulmo, but all. I thank you so much for who you are. Aitzka, Jesus, Aitzka. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Salish Wolf, brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions. I want to extend sincere gratitude to my guest in this episode, Joan Morris, for her friendship, courage, and compassion, and for entrusting me with her story. To learn more about Joan Morris and the struggle of Canadian Indigenous people, please read Gary Getty's meticulously researched and powerfully written book, Medicine Unbundled. For valuable books on honoring First Nations traditions and practices and preserving sacred knowledge for future generations, please read any of the works of Nancy J. Turner, including her newest book, Plants, People, and Places, The Roles of Ethnobotany and Ethnoecology in Indigenous Peoples' Land Rights in Canada and Beyond. You can also listen to an interview I did with Nancy on Pacific Rim College Radio. Please check out anchorpointexpeditions.com for more information on my men's leadership retreats and personal development coaching. My 2020 retreats are sold out, but stay tuned for the announcement of 2021 retreats for bow carving, paddleboarding, and surfing. Feel free to connect with me so we can discuss how these opportunities could impact you. This show was produced by me, Todd Howard, on Vancouver Island. Music was written and performed by Jason Kaus of the Darcy's. Special thanks to Pacific Rim College for their ongoing contribution to the show. For episodes on holistic health and sustainability, please tune in to my other podcast, Pacific Rim College Radio at pacificrimcollege.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for my upcoming podcast, 
Decay Chronicles, featuring the inspirational story of the lone wolf that mesmerized the city of Victoria by taking up residence on Jones Island, Kitchez, off the coast of Victoria. There, Takea thrived, showing us even the most unlikely is possible. You have been listening to Salish Wolf. I'm Todd Howard, signing off.